everybody. Welcome to episode 51 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So this week, we've got a bit of a special Halloween-themed episode for you. Uh, Later on, Joe and I will have a bit of a talk about what scares us in InfoSec for Halloween. But before then, we'll do our usual roundup of uh, vulnerabilities and fixes from the past week from the Ubuntu security team. And we're going to have a talk about uh, Firefox, PHP, Samba, uh, LibArchive, and the uh, two Ubuntu-specific components, Whoopsie and AppPort, that are used for uh, doing crash reporting. All right, uh, so let's just get straight into it. So first up, we have Firefox. So this is another standard Firefox update that includes a bunch of different uh, vulnerabilities that were fixed by the Firefox team. Uh, There were 13 different CVEs here, uh, and this update is for all of the uh, supported, standard supported releases, which is Xenial, Bionic, Disco, and now Eon, or Eowyn, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, One of these was uh, high priority, and we had 11 medium and one low priority. The high priority one was actually a heap-based buffer overflow uh, that was in the WebRTC uh, video handling uh, component of Firefox. And actually, this is a library that they share with Chromium and the Chromium project. And it was a vulnerability that was reported for Chromium uh, actually a year ago and was fixed relatively quickly by the Chromium team. And uh, the Firefox developers uh, realized this also affected them. However, uh, they didn't prioritize this because it was a feature that was disabled by default. Uh, So you weren't likely to actually be affected by it. But yeah, they've eventually got around to rolling in the exact same fix that the Chromium team uh, did. And so that's now fixed for Firefox. Plus then we also had our usual sort of suspects of vulnerabilities in Firefox that get fixed. Uh, These are things like stack-based buffer overflows in various components or use after freeze. Uh, There was also a heap-based buffer overflow that they fixed uh, with the bundled expat library that I talked about uh, for the rest of Ubuntu in episode 47. But yeah, so that's all been fixed for Firefox. We also had an update for PHP. So this was just one CVE, but this was fixed in all of the supported releases plus the extended security maintenance releases. So that is uh, precise and trusty extended security maintenance, Xenial, Bionic, Disco, and Eowyn. Uh, this was a remote code execution vulnerability in uh, the PHP if you're using the fast CGI process manager, so PHP FPM. So if you were configured to use that, uh, it would possibly write past the end of its allocated buffers. And so it would end up writing uh, you know, data into the buffers that we used for the fast CGI protocol handling. And this would then create a chance for remote code execution uh, as the PHP process. And there was actually even a an exploit uploaded to GitHub for this that would target uh, you know, vulnerable PHP FBM servers that were using a particular Nginx configuration to leverage this. So you kind of had to have Nginx configured in a certain way that would then allow you to trigger this uh, then in PHP behind that. But yeah, so that's been fixed for PHP. We've updated Samba as well. So three different CVEs here that were fixed for uh, precise and trusty extended security maintenance. And the standards releases Xenial, Bionic, Disco, and Eowyn. So this was, uh, as I say, three different CVEs. The first one was a denial of service that could be triggered from a user who had the get changes permission. So they would be able to crash uh, the Active Directory uh, DC LDAP server due to a null pointer to reference uh, if they were, or if you know, they were performing dersync with range results uh, as well. So. Yeah, it's, it didn't handle those two com- those two options in combination. So yeah, that's been fixed. Uh, plus, if you had configured your uh, Active Directory domain controller to call out to uh, a custom command to verify password complexity, and so that's you know useful for all kinds of things, I guess. It would then hand it hands a copy of the clear text password to whatever command you specify, and you get back a result. You know whether it's uh, you know good enough or not, basically. 
but if the password contained multi-byte characters, it wouldn't hand off the full password because what it would do is it would count the number of total characters in there. And some of those might be multi-byte, some of those might be just standard ASCII characters that take a single byte. And it would use that multi-byte length as the number of bytes to copy when it handed the password off. But because obviously multi-byte characters take up more than one byte, you would use a length that uh, was shorter in the total number of bytes compared to how the actual password. So you would miss the last few characters of the password. And so you, know, you could then circumvent different password complexity requirements potentially as a result. And finally, there was a bug fixed in uh, the SMB client code where uh, a malicious server would be able to craft file names that would return back to the client that would have relative paths in them. So, you know, dot, dot, slash and all that kind of stuff. So then uh, the SMB client would use that path and it could end up operating on a local file as a result that was outside of the, uh, the working directory. So you could make it then overwrite you know, various files on the local client machine. And so this was fixed basically just to, uh, you know, ignore those. So yeah, they've all been fixed for Samba. We also had an update for the LiveIDN2 library, uh, two CVEs here that were addressed for Bionic and Disco. So this is a library that handles internationalized domain names. Uh, it had a heap-based buffer overflow if you if it used a domain name that was too long. So basically it has a it's a library that can be called from other things and you're as the caller, you're meant to give it a buffer uh, that it specifies in its documentation could be uh, up to 63 bytes long as a maximum, but it would then go and happily uh, copy into your provided buffer with uh, however long the domain actually was. And it would ignore that so it wouldn't actually check it before it copied it. And yeah, it was using a bare stir copy. Uh, so yeah, it would copy the whole thing. Uh, this was fixed to actually do a length check first, but it is still using stir copy. So yeah, probably not a great programming practice in that library. But anyway, uh, the second CVE that was fixed there was it was possible for uh, to impersonate a domain name because you could encode your domain name as ASCII, but using Punicode. So that's like an ASCII representation of various Unicode characters. And it would then confuse that with an actual Unicode encoded domain. And so your Punicode domain could... Uh, in impersonate an actual Unicode domain of you know the, the same kind of name but obviously not the exact same name uh, yeah so they've both been fixed uh, in LibRDN2 uh, we also had an update for LibArchive uh, this is used for handling various archive formats obviously and this was fixed in uh, trusty extended security maintenance Xenial, Bionic and Disco uh, there was a use after free that could uh, occur in certain failure conditions when handling uh, RAR archives and this was found by Google's OSS Fuzz project and then on to uh, the last two. So uh, these are some vulnerabilities that were reported directly to the Ubuntu security team by uh, a couple of different security researchers, uh, one in the whoopsie uh, package and one in the AppPort package. And so these are both used to capture and upload crash reports that happen on your Ubuntu machine. So uh, I'm sure probably everyone has seen at some point, uh, you know, a, a dialogue pop up that says, you know, this application has crashed. Do you want to report it? And so that pop-up is part of uh, the AppPort kind of package or the crash reporting package. And it has two components, AppPort and Whoopsie. AppPort is used to capture the crash report on the host. Uh, it hooks into the kernel to do that. And Whoopsie is used to upload the crash report. And so uh, Kevin Backhouse from the SEML security research team reported a bunch of issues. Uh, the first one in Whoopsie, which was an integer overflow that would then lead to a heap-based buffer overflow. Uh, and so therefore you could get possibly code execution as the whoopsie user if you were to uh, give it a crafted crash report. And he also discovered some issues in AppPort, as did uh, another security researcher, Sander Bose. So I'll cover Kevin's first. Uh, so he reported two of these. Uh, with The first one was that uh, AppPort, so it 
Apport runs as root, and when it goes to uh, dump out a crash report, it then switches to the user of the process that actually crashed. But uh, at various times, it would read certain files still as root as the standard Apport user. And so uh, what would happen then is if it were to start dumping a crash report, it would be running as root, uh, and it might dump it for a privileged process. So it's still running as root, but then you could uh, you know, have another process crashes. And so as a normal user, you could do this yourself. You could start a process and send a six seg a signal of the segmentation vault signal to it and then Apple will start dumping it. Uh, the problem was that it would then, uh, you, that new process could potentially have the same process ID as the original one that crashed. Apple would then go and read various files for uh, the process uh, and it would still be root and it would read them as uh, you know the root user under the proc PID, so each process's own specific process files. Uh, but because it's running as root, it would then uh, read them from the original privileged process, even though it's dumping out for this unprivileged process and so you would get uh, an unprivileged crash report that has privileged process information in it. And so the fix of this was pretty simple just to make sure that Appport actually drops privileges before it goes to try and read those uh, potentially privileged files. Uh, Kevin also reported that uh, Appport would read uh, its per user configuration file so you can have your own uh, you know, Appport configuration file in your home directory. Uh, that configures various things about it, but it would also do that as root. And so, you know, if you wanted to, you could symlink that to, you know, a potentially root-owned file that Appport would then go and read. Uh, and, you know, that could cause potentially malicious effects. Uh, in general, Appport, uh, you know, tries to parse that. And, uh, you know, if it finds that it's invalid, it will error out. And so that usually won't have any effect. But yeah, that's also been fixed to make sure that Appport appropriately drops permissions before reading that file. And so then we had three other issues also reported to us, uh, as I said, by Sander Bose. So uh, the first of these was that Appport uses a lock file to make sure that uh, you know, multiple instances of itself can't run at the same time. Uh, but it would do this by creating in a, in a world-writable directory. And so therefore anyone could go and uh, create the lock file or meddle with it potentially. And so, uh, yeah, that was fixed just to make sure that it was placed in a non-world-writable location. Uh, Sander also reported that there was a time of check to time of use race on uh, the process ID in a different code path of Appport. So it's a bit like the first one I talked about from Kevin, but in this case, Appport had an internal variable that represented the current working directory of the crash process. And this is where it would write out the core dump to. Uh, but again, if you could cause uh, the kernel to essentially reuse that process ID, uh, it could then dump out say a privileged uh, processes crash report into uh, the location of an unprivileged process. So you could therefore, as the unprivileged user, read that crash dump as well. Uh, so that was fixed. And finally, uh, a more of a complicated issue, which was the way that Appport handles crashes for uh, processes within containers. And so when a process crashes in a container, you know, the host kernel is what will receive that crash, but we want Appport within the container to handle that. And so Appport has a socket that it uh, forwards those crashes to, to the uh, Appport instance within the container. And it finds that by traversing uh, the proc PID root magic link of the process. And so each process uh, under proc has a magic link that points to the root directory of that process. You know, so if you have chirruted into somewhere else, that process will have a different root. And therefore, you know, the app port location is different for that process. And in general, only root users can use Chiroot. So that's fine. You know, if it ends up going to a different root, that's fine because root has set it up that way. However, uh, containers don't necessarily work that way because you can use uh, unprivileged uh, user namespaces in a container to set yourself up as root within the container, and then you can chirrut to wherever you like. And so you could essentially then um, create your own crash dump handler inside the container that would receive a crash dump 
for uh, processes, other processes in the container. And so if you were to run a set UID process in that container, it's gonna run as root, it will um, crash and it's uh, crash dump will potentially get dumped out to your crash handler. And so you could therefore read a privileged process as crash dump again as an unprivileged user. So yeah, that has also been fixed for Apport as well. So, and I just wanna thank uh, Kevin and Sander for working with us for reporting those issues and yeah, getting those fixes out. Thanks again. All right, so that takes us to the end of the usual roundup of security vulnerabilities from the past week. Okay, so today is the 31st of October, which means it is Halloween. And so for this week, Joe and I thought we would have a chat about what scares us in InfoSec. Hey Joe, did you hear that? Sure did. That's the sound of spookiness, yeah, isn't it? That's right. It is. It's Halloween. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about uh, what scares us, in particular, what scares us in security. Yeah, because most other things, I'm not too scared of. But security sometimes can scare me. Although yep. I think there's kind of a happy ending, maybe. Um, like all good yeah, Halloween tales. Let's see. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Yeah. So... Um, you know, you, you kind of brought this idea up, Alex, and I really, I really liked it. You know, every week before we make these podcasts, Alex and I jump on our IRC and we start talking about what, what topic, what news article in the last week or so interests us. And, um, and Alex said, hey, it's Halloween. What scares us? So um, it's like so many things, but I don't want to sound like, like, is it Chicken Little? The sky is falling? Um, yeah. So I don't want to sound like that. But one thing that, that scares me a lot right now is... Um, end-to-end encryption and we totally need it right we absolutely need end-to-end encryption there's a whole bunch of bad actors out there um but it impacts a lot of the existing security tools we have right like you can't do deep packet analysis on https traffic right you can do it i guess behind your where it's decrypted on the other end of like an application web application firewall if you're making that your endpoint but you know you can't just stand up snort and be you know, doing DPI, right? Yeah, it's, it certainly changes the way that um, you need to work. Yes, if you're an intelligence agency, let's say, uh, and you're used to being able to do that, uh, then you either then need to compromise you know, you know, the end host or something, or uh, yeah, there are other, you, know, you need to do something else different, right? And so it, um, it does make certain things harder. But uh, I guess from my point of view, I would argue that, um, that to try to stop end-to-end encryption is very difficult because you know anyone could stand up their own you know there are so many open source crypto implementations you don't have to be able to write your own you can just take an existing one fork it use it and you know just because say in australia you know the government may have mandated that someone or some company you know needs to build something into their system that gives them access well they haven't done that for you know every small homegrown implementation right so there's always ways that uh, people will get around it so uh yeah, I think it. Where I, were I in an intelligence agency, uh, I would find it scary. You know, they they are you know the whole idea of them going dark, and that I think is partly true. But uh, you know, they still seem to be you know busting um, all kinds of criminal you know enterprises. Still, it doesn't seem to be affecting a lot of stuff. So yeah, because I mean, yeah, a, a lot. There are really good hackers, and there are lazy hackers, and uh, yep. just like everybody else, right? And the lazy ones aren't bothered to turn HPS. You know. Um, yeah. We we in our at Canonical in our secure coding guidelines tell you know we say encrypt everything right we just want to use encryption yeah. all the time too and 
I, as a user, want to use encryption all the time. So I think it's 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 scary, but there are ways are there are ways around this. I'll say IDS black hole. Right now, you can use more profiling things like uh, like flow analysis and things like that, and you can do things like make your if you have a corporate environment. You know, you could be using a proxy server that serves exactly. you know, with the CA server. So there are ways around yeah. it. But yeah. um, kind of like I said, you know, this is scary, but there's a light at the end of yeah. the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. uh, what is it? Every, uh, every, every night has a morning. Um, so uh, I think another thing that kind of, this was from the headlines this week that I thought was super interesting, was that, um, so Facebook, the company that owns WhatsApp, is suing NSO. So this NSO is a um, group that supposedly wrote this exploit to compromise WhatsApp uh, accounts. And so they wrote the exploit and they're a for-profit company and somebody used it to compromise, what, like 1,400 accounts of, I think it was some sort of activists. Um, and so I find that, I don't know, that I sort of lump that in with possible like nation state actors and that concerns me, right? Like that's that's why we need this end-to-end encryption. <laughs> you know, this is what's forcing people to use things where they couldn't just, you know, use the equivalent of TCP dump. Now they've got to do things that compromise apps. Um, that's that's you know concerning me. But you know, yeah, I find places like NSO Group scary, but only because um, they don't seem to have. They will sell their stuff to anyone, right? And they'll sell it to governments who quite like to oppress their citizens and things like that. And uh, that's what I find scary about it. You know, I understand there are always going to be for-profit companies building uh, things. You know, there's a group in Australia um, called Lynchpin Labs, and they were kind of outed in this big article uh, about two years ago now um, on Motherboard kind of saying, you know, these guys build... Uh, tools that are used by the Five Eyes, you know, community to you know hack into things and you know sort of trying to out them and uh, you know so these places do exist, but they you know some like to at least uh, try to uh, sell to only um, you know more known good actors mm-hmm. and others don't. So yeah, that scares me more, I guess, than the fact that these things exist. It's more about how they're used and you know what is that thing? You know, with great power comes great responsibility, yeah. and I feel that some places don't choose to exercise good responsibility over what they do and what they build. And is the origin of that Spider-Man? I'm not sure, but I, I'd like to think so. Okay. <laughs> it's like, it's, I know it's in that, but I don't know if it came about earlier in like The Hobbit or something, you know, or Lord yeah. of the Rings. But anyhow, um, see my reading is pretty focused in one area. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, like I said, like you said, you, you're going to um, have companies making these things and that's fine. It's just, I guess, how it's used. So that's interesting. You know, it wasn't, during was it um, during the Arab Spring, um, they shut down the basically the internet at the, in the country at the time. But people were standing yeah. up like there were, everybody was using Wi-Fi and mesh networks and things like. Oh, I'm sorry, mesh networks and cellular and things like that. So yeah. if they had if they had to, if they had cheap enough, easy enough jammers that could block these things that everybody could have, that would have been bad. But luckily enough, they're yeah. cost prohibitive. Although yep. somebody will probably mention that there's some Hackaday link that'll show me how to build one with parts from Radio Shack. But still, not everybody wants to do that. Uh, yeah. So uh, I already mentioned nation state, but I'm, I'm scared of the headlines of nation states going after critical infrastructure. So if you remember, I think it was 2008, um, country of Georgia um, essentially had their network knocked offline by, um, by I think it was Russia. And they were, because I guess all their internet presence goes through one pop, 
and they were um, <laughs> that pop happened to terminate outside of the country, obviously, and they were pushing that data through Russia, and it was kind of being black holed. And then um, I think right now they're saying um, uh, there's a countrywide attack going on that's like taking down like two thousand sites or something, um, and. I don't really care about websites going offline, but when you hear, if you look at the, the headlines, all companies are trying to attack the power grids, the water grid, et cetera. Um, but where I feel good about this, luckily, that stuff's not really networked. It's all isolated. You know, the power grid in city X and city Y isn't seamlessly connected to city Z, right? They're, they're not current enough technology where they've built mechanical redundancy in. Um, and it's, it's. I would say there's a lot of probably old Windows NT boxes still running SCADA systems. But um, luckily you could turn off a small area, but you'd have to have so many simultaneous attacks uh, of varying infrastructure that I think that would be more difficult than the headlines would have you believe. Otherwise we'd see a lot more of it. Yeah, certainly to make a, a large... A nation, you know, go dark literally by turning off all their power or something like that would be very difficult. But uh, I think we're starting to see, you know, things like this are becoming more commonplace. Um, there, you know, there are attacks, targeted attacks at different areas and things like that that are already happening and are already effective. And I guess I'm a bit more scared that as we go into a more, you know, even more hyper-connected world and these systems get upgraded and everything just ends up on the internet as a matter of course, uh, that we may see more and more of that. But um, you know, maybe maybe we can know that in advance and build these systems, uh, like you say, with uh, with redundancy and with uh, you know better security precautions in mind. Well, and you know, to to your point, I think a lot of these older boxes that are running on like serial to IP converters that are connecting to you know Windows NT boxes, and I'm not bashing all Windows, but particularly in this case, Windows NT boxes are still online, right? And um, you know. They're getting, they're, the companies no longer want to support them. They're starting to break. You can't install that on current hardware, so you can't replace it. So they are getting newer devices. And some of these newer devices are built on things like Ubuntu Core, right? And Ubuntu Core is a stripped-down, um, security-focused distribution of Ubuntu for IoT devices and critical systems like that, where you can, I'll say, compartmentalize the functionality Um you know, similarly, and, and it gets updated automatically. Um, similarly with what, you know, some of these robotics things, you know, we're doing um, a lot more security in, in the ROS space right now. So uh, for the robotics operating system, you know, we're we're scanning more of, the, um, more of the packages with Coverity and working with Upstream and giving a better experience there. So, um, you know, I'm talking about Ubuntu because that's what we do, but there are, there are other companies, I'm sure, doing this, the same things. Yeah. Uh, you know, Microsoft have got their, I think it's called Sphere OS that's built on top of Linux that is targeted at IoT as well. And again, it has the you know, auto-update story and a bunch of other things kind of built into it. So I guess, um, I guess what scares me is the number of, um, you know, companies out there who will build, like roll their own, you know, Linux build for their little embedded um, machine, whatever it is that they've built. You know, I, I've seen it in the automotive space where um, they'll build a ECU that is based on Linux that is, say, just a single build root build or a open embedded build um, uh, or Yocto, should I say, mm-hmm. nowadays. Uh, and 
you know, it will almost rarely see updates. You know, it has a single fixed kernel version and single fixed versions of various packages that never see updates. Mm-hmm. And that worries me more um, than a lot of stuff, right? Uh, you know, there are now, as we say, Ubuntu Core and, and other systems that have auto updates built into them have... Um, have an know, actual case update of, path, right? Where a lot of, like, yeah. you know, not to pick on Jocto, but I've been using that for a long time for embedded devices and, and initially on like, on my... With, on my wireless access points, right? Um, I don't think they yeah. they weren't meant to be updated all the time, right? I'm sure you, you could update them, but a lot of times, at least back when I was using it, that meant that, and this is a long time ago, that your Linksys WRT54 would then go offline if you tried to update, so... Um, yeah, that, you're flashing it, a whole yeah. new file system image, mm-hmm. right? And you have to take it down to do that. It's the same with a lot of the the home router mm-hmm. market right you get your uh, updates from your vendor and you have to flash it and it has to reboot and it's painful um yeah and and the other thing about ubuntu core is we ha- it's all built on snaps so every application comes with confinement and you know you compromise one potentially but you can't then get through to the rest of the system and you know everything is a lot more locked down so that gives me some hope that uh, because these things are available and freely available that uh, hopefully they're starting to see adoption and starting to see some traction in these markets mm-hmm. to improve you know, general security. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, like we started this off, there are things that scare us, but there are things that I think we can do to address all those things. And the last thing I want to talk about would be um, uh, we're still seeing a lot of security folks who are auditors. They're not engineers and we need that to change and by that i mean we need folks who are um who know how to be a sysadmin who know how to be a network engineer who know how to code because with the complex security problems we're facing today you can't simply run a scan and look at the results and say you're good or bad you need to have deeper knowledge you need to be able to if you see a problem with packages on a system or a configuration on a system. You need to understand how to fix it, what the implications of fixing it are. Um, you know, I, everything we do is on the network. You need to understand how, how networks are deployed, how topologies work, how, how different things like BGP work, things like that. Um, and then lastly, you need to know how to code to do security. This doesn't mean you need to be a, the world's greatest C++ programmer, but you need to have an understanding of coding and how um, and how programs work to understand how to protect them. So um, you know if you're if you're a security person and you're not strong on these things, you know just spin up a VM at home and and play with it, right? Play with these things and get better at those things, and it will make you a much better security person. So hopefully the folks who are I, I see a lot of new junior security people who are super excited and who have these skills and that gives me a lot of hope because now we've got people who are genuine engineers working on security and not just folks who know how to look at a checklist yeah i agree uh i think and it goes both ways right it's um we need to be educating our uh, you know the people who are just general developers as well about you know secure coding practices and uh you know how to build their systems and how to design their systems with security in mind yeah so it's two-way street yeah and then you know for for folks who aren't familiar with things yet but still need to you know get their systems online and make them secure there are some really good benchmarks you can look at like this is stig is a good um as a good uh benchmark uh there's the cis benchmark um 
you know, there's uh, a whole bunch of other open ones, common criteria, etc. And these things, we have a lot of them available for Ubuntu, but there's other ones you can just look at, you know, DISA publishes their SIGs, CIS, you can just download the 400 page PDF um, and start looking through those things and securing your boxes. CSA has a great uh, cloud security um, document. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of things you can look at. We've got a lot of automation built in to change those things on your boxes. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess we've gone on a long time tonight, Alex. I'm going to have to edit this one down. But um, thank you everybody for listening and listening to us talk through um, what scares us, but much like Halloween, it's just something in a costume and you really don't need to be scared of it. All right, thanks, Joe. Okay, bye, everybody. So thanks again for that, Joe. All right, so that takes us to the end of this week's episode. As usual, if you want to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at security at ubuntu.com. Or if you want to chat to us, you can find us in the Ubuntu Harden channel on irc.freenode.net. Uh, you can also email us at the mailing list, which is uh, the Ubuntu Harden mailing list uh, at the list.ubuntu.com, and I've got a link to that in the show notes. Or if you like more Web 2.0 style, you can reach us at the security section of discourse.ubuntu.com. And finally, on Twitter, we are at Ubuntu underscore sec. So thanks, everyone, for listening again for another week. Uh, until next time, remember, keep calm and enable automated upgrades, and I will speak to you again soon. Bye. Bye.